And this morning, I am really excited about the passage that uh, we're going to be teaching through, which is uh, Matthew chapter 12. And I'm really glad <clears throat> that Pastor Jeff talked about that, Jonah, because we're actually not going to cover that this morning. Um, because that's the le- that's, it's a really long chapter, and there's so much good stuff in here. Um, and so what I want to challenge you to do, parents, is uh, the rest of this chapter, we're going to go down through verse 37, but kind of 38 through 42 is the part where they're asking for a sign. And uh, just let me encourage you parents to, to maybe talk through that with your kids and have a conversation with them about how Jonah and Jesus are similar because there is a lot of similarity there. And God is in the, in the fashion of kind of foreshadowing his, the events of, of the Messiah. He foreshadowed those in a lot of different ways. Um, but this morning, I really specifically want to talk about the sins of the Pharisees and Jesus being the Spirit-filled Lord. And as we read through this passage in Matthew chapter 12, we're going to see kind of scene after scene unfolding. That's just kind of how I envision this, is scene after scene of Jesus interacting with the Pharisees and 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 calling them out and them trying to trap him. It just happens over and over and over again. So let's stand together in the honor of God's word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 12 through verse 37. So we got a little bit of ways to go here, but we're going to read through this pretty quickly this morning and then we'll study it together. So Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples, look at what your disciples are doing, what is not lawful for them to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat? nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, the priests in the temple, profaned the Sabbath and are, guiltless, or, and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my, put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will he hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, 
so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Does Satan cast out Satan? He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, or therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder the house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Verse 33, Either make this tree... Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on that day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful, Lord, that we have this opportunity to come and read your word together. Just, Lord, just that is enough. Lord, it isn't by any special words that I say, Lord, that there's any power. But God, it is in the truth found in your word and only that. Lord, we come to celebrate you this morning. We come to lift you up, to make much of you and less of us. Lord, I pray that this morning as we look into this passage, Lord, that we would see ourselves reflected. Lord, we would ask ourselves the questions, Lord, and we look at the sins that these Pharisees committed. God, we would be quick not to make the same. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Um, I was born in 1979, and uh, I was a child of the 80s, and I grew up in the 80s. And if you know much about the 80s, you should know it was one of the greatest decades in human history. <laughs> Just like everybody says about every decade, right? Um, but there are some unique things about growing up in the 80s, specifically when I grew up. There were just great toys, there were great movies like Back to the Future and things like that. And I, I loved watching movies as a kid. There was one movie in particular that had a profound effect on me, and I think if you saw it, it probably had a profound effect on you. And it's still one of my favorite movies to watch. And it's kind of interesting how things from back then have kind of cycled back around, and there's kind of a I'm continued take on this, this movie, but it's the movie Karate Kid. How many of y'all have seen that movie, Karate Kid? I mean, who has not seen the movie Karate Kid, right? We all are familiar with that movie, right? We have 
Daniel's son, right? He's Daniel's son. He's just this kid who's come and moved from, from New York to California, and he's this fish out of water, and he meets this other guy, Mr. Miyagi, right? Pat Morita, and, and who, who you, you would see him, you would never know that he was a karate master, right? He just liked to kind of pot plants and cut things and, and do his bonsai thing. But, but lo and behold, you know, Daniel kind of gets in a fight, and, and so uh, Mr. Miyagi sees him get, have, have, having gotten a fight and wants to teach him and train him how to do karate, and if you remember, um, there, he has an unusual way of teaching him how to do that, right? We all know, we all know this. What is, what is this? Wax on. What is this? Wax off, right? Okay, so it starts out with these things. We got wax on and wax off. We have, we have paint the fence. We have sand the deck. And, and just, like, just like Daniel in the movie, he's like, listen, what, what am I doing? I feel like all I'm doing is work for you. This is, how am I learning karate here? And then there's this epic scene where, where Mr. Miyagi teaches him. He starts to attack him and he teaches them how wax on and wax off and all this kind of stuff, right? I mean, that was our karate lessons. If you grew up in the 80s, that, that's how, that was karate, right? Wax on, wax off. That's all you needed. And you could defeat anyone. And in that, in that movie, though, there was this other group of people. There was this rival group. Do you remember who I'm talking about here? We're talking about Cobra Kai, right? There was this enemy dojo that existed out there, this other group of, of karate guys, and they had a, a motto. Do you remember what that motto was? No mercy, okay? No mercy. And, and really, the extended version of that is strike first, Strike hard, no mercy. But they really repeated that phrase over and over again, no mercy. And as Daniel kind of got into fights with them, uh, you know, they showed him no mercy. And right as we watch the movie kind of play out, there's these scenes that happen. And I'm going to kind of reference some of those as we go through this. But in this passage here, I feel like there is an a, a, a illustration or connection with that movie because you have Jesus, this kind of lone prophet. He's the son of God. And yet there's this group of, of people who are out against him, right? And they have no mercy for him. They have anything he says, everything he does, he, they're, they're there to criticize him and to uh, kind of trap him because really he is... He's, he's an affront to everything that they stand for. And their opinion, as we'll see through this passage, you know, he's not really preaching about God. He's leading people away from what they want them to go. So as we start out here, I'm just going to kind of call this scene one. So as we go through this, I'm going to kind of use these, these ideas here. And, and in the first scene, we have... This It says, At the time Jesus went through the grain fields of the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. So you can imagine Jesus and his disciples going through these grain fields, and his disciples are, not, are you know, getting hungry, so they just began to eat raw grain. But it's the Sabbath, right? And what's interesting about this is, this is really interesting because it is part of the way God created a system of welfare for people who weren't able to provide for themselves. They, they would leave the outside edges of a field un, unharvested so that people who didn't have grain, who didn't have money to buy grain, could go there and 
by their own hands could work and harvest the grain themselves. They could grind it into, into flour and make bread out of that. But it was a way for, that God gave them in the Old Testament to provide for those who didn't have any. And so Jesus kind of, and his disciples, kind of be in this ragtag group who, you know, kind of, at least from our perspective, kind of seemingly just kind of wandered around. They were, they were a little bit like that. So they go through here and his disciples take this grain and begin to eat it. And it's interesting because the Pharisees are almost like, I just had this picture in my head that they're starting to eat this. And somehow the heads of the Pharisees just kind of come up out of the grain stalks and like start looking at them and then kind of go back down, right? It's like they're always watching. It's like they're always there. It's like they, they never miss anything. And so they come out and they say, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Say, look, look what your disciples are doing, Jesus. It's not, it's not lawful for them to eat grain on the Sabbath because they're harvesting. It wasn't that it was against to eat. It was that they were eating grain, which they considered to be harvesting that grain to eat it. it it's really complicated. And what I think is interesting here, you have to understand what the Sabbath was like in Jesus' day. And even, even it still is for many Jews today. It is, it is something that was turned into, that God created as a day of rest. But the Jews in that day had added so many things to it. Things that, they had taken the things that God had told them to do, and they had put all these rules and regulations onto it, where you couldn't do this, but you could do this. You couldn't take more than this steps. All, all that sort of thing. For example, in Exodus 16, 29, God tells them that they're not to travel on the Sabbath. And so the religious leaders kind of said, well, what, what, what does it mean to travel? You know, God didn't give any specifics about what that travel meant. And so they said, what does, what does it mean to travel? Well, they, they just kind of arbitrarily came up with this. Well, you know, what's work? Well, really, if you take 3,000 steps, you know, that's... That's kind of normal for a person. So if you take any more, 3,001, you're actually working, and you're, you're working against the Sabbath. So they, they, would, they had this rule, you couldn't take more than 3,000 steps on the Sabbath. It also, in Exodus 10, 8 through 11, said for they, God forbid them from carrying a load on the Sabbath. And so what the religious leaders and the Pharisees and Sadducees did, they asked, well, what, is, what does it mean to carry a load? And they started to think about, well, well, what can you carry and what can't you carry? And then this list of things that you could do and that you couldn't do. You could wear clothes, but you couldn't carry clothes. And it was just this on and on list of things you couldn't do. And in Exodus 35.3, that God had told them not to light a fire on the Sabbath. So they, they incorporated that, like you could have no light in your home on the Sabbath unless you lit it the day before. And even today, a lot of the times, modern Jews will have automatic timers on their lights so they don't turn it on on the Sabbath because it's forbidden to turn on or to make fire. And they interpret that to being a light in their home. So the Sabbath had become this monotonous, just impossible thing to measure up to. And the Pharisees were constantly there just trying to interpret what God said. And so what Jesus tells them here, he, he comes back and says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor of those who were with him. 
So he says, look, here's a good example of, a, of something that happened and y'all didn't make any big deal out of it. He takes David, says, David, when he was being pursued by Saul and was starving, he went into the house of God and ate of the bread, which he wasn't supposed to do, but God never punished him for that. And the people who were with him ate and God never punished him for that. So Jesus is saying, why are you, why are you getting on my case here? And then he gives him another example. He says, well, what about the priests? The priests are performing all these duties on the Sabbath, okay, at the temple. You don't give them a hard time. He says, but, uh, he goes on to say, um, he says, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, the priests and the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Like, you're giving them a free pass, but yet you're coming after me. And then in verse 6, he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not have condemned the, guilt, the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So what the rabbinic law had done is created this system which you weren't really a good Jew, you weren't really close to God unless you obeyed these thousands of rules. And, and so the first sin that they have committed here is they equated their traditions with God's commands. They equated their man-made traditions with God's commands. They had added thousands of rules to interpret God's commands. And here's what I think. I think God intentionally didn't, wasn't specific when he gave those commands. He gave a command and we should respect that and obey that, but yet it's up to us to interpret what that means. And we don't need to be specific where God hasn't been specific. But where God is specific, we need to be specific. But what the Jews had done in that day, the religious leaders, that they had taken all of their traditions and interpretations of God's law and they basically had put them just near right under what God had said. And it's ultimately only something that they themselves could actually abide by. The Jew who was living in the countryside, who was just trying to live their life, it just seemed unattainable, so why should they even try? And I want to give us a warning here, and this warning is just for us in, in churches because sometimes we have a tendency to do something similar to this. Sometimes we let our traditions creep up on us and become almost like God's law in our life. And if we don't put checks and balances to watch ourselves to make sure that we're not doing those things, sometimes the things we think we should be doing are not necessarily what God thinks we should be doing. We have to watch ourselves. Jesus gives them this passage here. He says, if you would understand what this meant, and I love this, if you would have understand what this meant, you would get this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. One of my other favorite scenes in the movie, Karate Kid, is actually at the very end. This is another memorable scene. I'm sure you will remember it. Where the fight is over. Daniel has won. Everything's great, right? You think movie over, end credits roll. But no, there's this one extra scene at the end, right, that happens outside of the tournament 
where um, the other, the other a guy he, Daniel was fighting against you know, had lost, and so his sensei was, was really angry with him, right? And so he comes out with this trophy, and, and his sensei takes it, and he breaks it, and he says, you're, you know, you're a loser, you're terrible. And he starts to attack his own student, basically to try to teach him a lesson, like there's no mercy. You, go, you gave Daniel mercy, and that's how he was able to win. And so just, just at that same moment, Daniel and, and Mr. Miyagi are walking out to their beat-up old truck, right? And they see what's happening. And what happens is that the, 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 the bad sensei, he kind of grabs the student and puts him in a chokehold. He's sitting there choking him. And Mr. Miyagi goes over there and tells him to let him go. Do you remember the scene? Am I only by myself here, right? He says, hey, hey let, let him go. And the, and the guy says, no. And then finally it's like, the sensei versus sensei match happens at the end of the movie, right? Which is like, wow, I thought this movie was over. Daniel won, but no, here's what I'm really looking for. And so what happens is the sensei tries to attack him and punches through a window. And then he punches through another window and his hands are all bloody. And Mr. Miyagi just kind of dodges the, the punch after punch. Until finally, Mr. Miyagi kind of grabs him and puts him down on his knees. And you think just for a second, Mr. Miyagi raises his hand up like he's about to like just karate chop him in the throat or something like that. And what happens? He goes to his nose and he goes, honk. Okay, he honks his nose. He honks his nose. You think, this is your opportunity, Mr. Miyagi. Show him who's boss. Okay, show him that you're the master and he is not. Teach him a lesson. But instead, what Mr. Miyagi does is he gives him mercy. The same thing, their mantra of no mercy Mr. Miyagi showed him mercy. And it was hopefully in showing him mercy that Mr. Miyagi hoped that that would change his heart. That there was a heart issue that was happening there with him. And so when Jesus says, I, he, he says, I wish you would know, understand what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It gives us a glimpse into the heart of God of what is God looking for from us. What is it that God desires from us? Is he wanting us to be no mercy? Is he wanting us to be mercy? Mercy. mercy. <laughs> so this idea, he says, sacrifice. Well, the sacrificial system that was established there, they had bought so much into this level of obedience. And let me say this. I don't mean to ever take away anything that we should obey God. 100% all the time. We should obey God. But they gave, God gave them this sacrificial system that was never meant to be a path to salvation. Rather, it was a reflection of what Jesus would do. It was a foreshadowing of Jesus' work on the cross. But they had taken this idea of obedience to the point that they had missed the heart of God. And instead, there's this other idea of mercy. And mercy is the, is the forgiveness of God demonstrated. It is the work, it is the fruit of a forgiven heart. See, the second sin that the Pharisees committed was they obeyed the law in detail, but not in its whole. 
And I want to warn us again today that it's easy for us sometimes to get into the routine of we understand what it means to be a Christian, to do this and not do this. And we get into this routine of obedience. And I want us to be careful when we do that. And we should obey God. But it's important for us when we do get in that path, in that routine of obedience, that we don't miss the heart of God. And I always say this, Jesus is the perfect interpretation of the will of the Father. Jesus is the perfect interpretation of the will of the Father, of the laws of God. Always look to Jesus to understand how to live out the commands of God. Always. Look to Jesus to learn how to live out the commands of God. And if you do that, you know what? You'll live them out in a way that draws us closer to him. Not farther from him. See, that's what the Pharisees did. They lived and they obeyed and they made all these other laws and they created this system, but that system created a path that really led them away from God. And I think it's important to note here that it's possible to be zealous for God and not actually be with God. Because if you were looking at these Pharisees here, they were zealous about the law of God. They were fanatic about it. Okay? They, they, they loved God's word. Okay? They loved the Torah. They, they would memorize it. They would understand it. They would study it all day. But yet, somehow they could do that and miss the heart of God. And I say to us, just, just, just as a word of caution for us, it, it, we should study God's word and we should know it, we should memorize it, we should write it on our heart. But at the same time, if that doesn't help us to live that out and how we relate to other people, we may have missed the heart of God. Because the reality is, God didn't give us these rules just to make us obedient. He gave us these rules so that we would tell others about him. That we would show the difference that he makes in our life. Always look to Jesus to understand how to live those out. So in this passage, in this scene, he tells them, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God is looking for you to show mercy to those around you, to love and compassion. Because you would not have condemned the guiltless. And what is he talking about there, the guiltless? He's talking about the other Jews who can never feel like they ever feel like they're enough. They never feel like they're enough because the Pharisees are always around them telling them they're not good enough, they're not doing enough, they're not holy enough, they're not perfect enough. And rather than just trusting in the grace and in the love of mercy of God, they have to feel like they're never enough. And it's important for us to understand that's who Jesus came for. Jesus came to those who were feeling that way, to his people, so they would understand what the heart of God was. And in verse 8, he says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And when he makes this claim, this isn't just some claim. He makes a claim saying that he is Lord of the Sabbath. That he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Proclaims himself to be God. So we look at the, ne the next scene, verse 9. The next scene happens, and he says, He went on from there and entered their synagogue. Like, they probably wish Jesus would go his own way, but it's almost like he follows them. And goes into their synagogue. It is the Sabbath. 
So he follows them and goes to their synagogue, and it's almost like he sits on their pew, in their turf. And there was a man there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Not a bad question in and of itself, but, but Matthew tells us here that the purpose of them asking that question isn't to gain insight. It's not to understand God, but rather it's so that they might accuse him. They had already made up their mind about this question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Their answer was no. It is not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. But again... They want to do that. They ask him that question just to accuse him. And so he says to them, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You know, nothing that Jesus could do would change their mind. They had set their mind against him to a point where nothing he did, nothing he said was going to change their mind. And oftentimes, we kind of do the same thing sometimes, right? Because somehow there's situations, somebody rubs us the wrong way, and then we put on these glasses that are, that are just kind of our bias against this person. Because maybe they said something or didn't say something right, or maybe they did something that just kind of rubbed us the wrong way. And we've already made up our mind that there's nothing that they can say or do that can really redeem them in our own eyes. And there's this thing called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is the tendency to interpret any new evidence or action as confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. Let me say this again. Confirmation bias is the tendency to interpret any new evidence or action as confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. Let me give you this kind of help us understand this, right? Because this plays out all the time in our world, and I want us to, to kind of get this, right? It really applies to our personal, professional, our political points of view here. For, for examples, maybe it's Joe Biden or, or Barack Obama, right? It doesn't really matter. We've already made up our mind about what we think about them as, as president. So, so nothing they say or do really can change everything good that they do. We filter it through our confirmation bias, and it's really not good. It's bad. If, if you're a Democrat, maybe it was Donald Trump or George Bush or, or somebody on the other team, you know, everything that they do is terrible. They're a terrible human, human being. And so nothing that they can do will ever measure up or ever redeem them in our eyes. And in the same way, nothing Jesus could do would change their mind. No miracle, no teaching, no proof was going to change their mind about him. Because here's what happens, right? They asked him, he says, yes, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so he, in front of them, in front of them, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He performs this miracle. The man stretches it out. It was restored healthy like the other. In front of their eyes, they saw someone's hand be restored. In the very next verse, verse 14, it says, but the Pharisees, did they see this miracle? Did they see that and say, man, who could do that? No. What they do is they go out and they conspire against him to destroy him. So the third sin that they committed is they didn't check their own biases. They didn't check their own biases. 
You know, Jesus pointed out their hypocrisy. He says, listen, if you had a sheep, would you not do something for that sheep? If it was going to die, of course you would. Then why would you not do good to another human being? Now, whether it was an animal, it was okay. But if it was a human, it wasn't. He just points out their own hypocrisy. That they were willing to break the law to save an animal, but not to heal a person. And I love how Jesus says this. He says, you know, his how much more, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? <laughs> and when you hear that, I hope, I hope it kind of is an echo. Because in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gives us this illustration about the sparrows and how much more valuable we are than, the, than, than them. And I want you to understand this. God loves you. You are not like every other creature that God created. God created you to have an intimate relationship with you. I love the picture in Genesis of, of, of God forming us out of the dust of the ground. He doesn't do that with every other, other animal. He speaks and, and that exists. But with us, he takes his time and creates us like a creator. He creates us and, and, and forms us in his own image. We are prized above all creation. Jesus came to demonstrate the love of the Father to us by dying on the cross for us. Jesus shows that the value of a man is much more than that of a sheep or any other animal. He clarifies the law and he says it is good to do it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he is the lawgiver. He demonstrates this by performing a miracle right in front of their eyes. And so when the when the Pharisees go away looking to destroy him, because they're just not satisfied with you know trying to win people over from him, but rather there's nothing they can do. Everything that they say, he he has the perfect answer for. He performs miracles. There's nothing they can deny. They can't deny that that he's doing amazing things that they wished they could do. And so they're really jealous of him. This is motivated by their own jealousy of Jesus. And instead of seeing him as their loving Savior, their loving Messiah who has come to them to rescue them and to save them, rather they're filled with jealousy and pride. And Jesus kind of demonstrates four things here. Number one, he showed that he was smarter than them. He understood the law in its truest sense. And we see this demonstrated throughout the rest of his ministry where you know, oftentimes religious leaders and teachers would say, you've heard it said, and just really kind of repeat what other teachers said. And that was kind of part of the problem. They would just repeat what other teachers before them would say or clarify different laws. They would never really say things for themselves. But Jesus would say, you've heard it said, but now I say to you, a demonstration of his authority to give law and to teach. He was more popular than them. People followed him, and we'll see in the next verse. People go after him, and they, he heals them. He was extremely popular and loved. He was more powerful for them, more powerful than them. They didn't have the power to heal a withered hand. They could barely cast out a demon. They couldn't do any of the things that Jesus did. 
It's kind of interesting. I don't know if you've watched um, the series called The Chosen. If you have, you probably remember this scene. But there's a scene in there where they're trying to cast the demon out of, out of Mary. And, um, and they, they go and do all these rituals. And they try and they try and they try and they try and they try. And they just can't seem to make it happen. And then Jesus, by just the word of his mouth, speaks out the demon. In that day, they would try to do things and demonstrate the power of God, but they did not have the power that Jesus had. The fourth thing that he did is he revealed their hearts were not really for God, but rather for themselves. Their tendency was for the, to protect their own power, to protect their own prestige. No one, so they, they were revered in culture. Why? Because they had created a religious culture where they were the perfect ones where they were the ones who could only live up to the law. And instead of bringing the laws of a loving God to the people and showing them how to, to live that out, instead they made them feel like it was an impossible task. It's an impossible task. So the fourth sin they committed is they had murder in their hearts. They hated Jesus. They hated what he stood for. They hated the things that he did. He hated, they hated the way that he embarrassed them. Yet they were powerless and really even playing into the plan of God as they sought to destroy Jesus. And I love this, this way that God even uses the bad intentions of bad people, the evil things that happen to bring about his will. Only God can do that. Only God can use these Pharisees, only God can use Judas to bring about his own will that the Son would die on the cross for our sins. That's how awesome God is. He works on a level that we can't even think or imagine. So let's kind of go to the next scene here. Verse 15, I like to call this kind of a, a narrative pause. A narrative pause here where there's a little bit of a clarification. So in verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill the, uh, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He, he, in Isaiah 42, this is, this is, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will he, anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. And I love that Matthew puts this passage in here because it helps us understand what Jesus is doing here. And in verse 18, he says, Behold my servant with whom I am, I am chosen, and my soul is well pleased here. That, that's, that's a picture when Jesus was baptized, right? The voice of the Father says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. God is working in His Spirit. The Spirit of the Father is working through Jesus the Son to accomplish His will on earth. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. You have to understand in this day, I did a lot of research this week as I was watching a lot of videos and reading articles. I really wanted to kind of see and hear, what did Jews think about Jesus? 
Like, I, I know I'd heard things, but I wanted to hear it from Jews, what they thought about Jesus. And they would do, you know, the, the videos I watched, you know, he was just kind of a, a good teacher. That's all they would be willing to say, is that he was a good teacher. But Jesus didn't really give them that option. He didn't really give them the option just to think he was a good teacher because he did these miracles that demonstrated a power that was not natural, it was supernatural. And in this passage here, we have, he says, I will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And in verse 21, and in his name, the name of Jesus, the Gentiles will hope. As I was watching these videos, it's not, not hard to figure out that the Jewish people are very proud to be Jewish. And in their history, they have endured tremendous persecution. They have endured a lot of things just because of their ethnicity. But even despite all those things, they're proud to be Jewish. And what I thought was interesting is as I was watching these videos just about how proud they are to be that, there was almost a disdain for people who are not of the same ethnicity they are. And I think we see this kind of played out here in the life of, of in Jesus' day, and even somewhat today, where, where the Jews, they, they gather, but there's like a wall there. This is for us. They took the laws and the heart of God, and they drew it near to them, but yet no one else could have it. It was their special thing. It was their, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, it was their precious, right? They didn't want anybody else to have it. It was their thing. God was their God. But I think you find that contradictory in Scripture because as we look back, we see, like we talked about here, Jonah. We see God send prophets to Gentile nations. And we see them repent and come to God. And we, see, we see God exile his people to to, to Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, and they have influence there and turn, even turn, you know, great, great kings uh, to, the, to the faith. But it was almost like this thing they never fully realized was that they were supposed to be a light to the nations. And Isaiah 49, 6 tells the Jews to be a light to the nations that God's salvation would reach the ends of the earth. But yet they never took that. It was their thing, and they, they took their light and they hid it so no one else could see that. And instead of, in love and compassion, reaching out to the Gentiles and sharing the love of God, rather they hated them, especially in Jesus' day. And we're not even getting into his interaction with Gentiles today. So I think their fourth sin was not giving hope to the Gentiles. Just as this passage says that Jesus would proclaim justice to them, and in his name the Gentiles would, would have hope, they didn't give hope to the Gentiles. The next scene, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about this. The next scene happens, it says, Then a, a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed. And they asked the right question, can this be the son of David? Is this the Messiah, is what they're asking here? 
That was a good question. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They begin to spread lies about Jesus. That really, he's really just using the power of Satan to cast out these demons. So here you have the people who are looking to Jesus to, to trust in him as their Messiah. But yet the Pharisees are working behind the scenes to dissuade people from the truth. So other than the devil being the prince of lies, the Pharisees are the ones spreading the lies here. Now, I love that in verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, then how will his kingdom stand? He says, listen, what you're saying doesn't make any sense. Why would Satan cast out other demons? They're doing his will. He's not going to do that against himself. His house would be divided. That would not work for his kingdom. That would work against his kingdom. And as you think about this, Jesus, who has an intimate knowledge of how spiritual things and spiritual beings work, he knows Satan. He was tempted by him. Satan spoke to him to try to lead him to sin. And he resisted him. And yet Jesus here is being accused of being the very one who really and truly is in the heart of the Pharisees. And he says in verse 27, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Saying, listen, if you're going to say, I'm doing this by the power of the devil, then who are you doing it by? Because I'm really doing the same thing. And he goes on in this illustration, and you know, how can... How can, how can someone enter a strong, man ho- strong man's house or plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. What, is, what does that mean? Jesus is demonstrating his own power to control Satan, demons. There is no one that he cannot control. He can bind any enemy. He can overcome any obstacle. But yet, seeing this demonstrated again and again and again, they choose not to believe. And then in verse 30, I think this is important. As whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus gives us no room to be neutral on who he is. And we live in a world where everyone is kind of living their own truth right now. Okay? And that's why I can't emphasize enough that we have to bring it to Jesus. Every person in this world has to make a decision on who do they say Jesus is. That is the most important question anyone will ever answer. And there's only one right answer, but there's two different answers to that question. C.S. Lewis gives us this famous way he called the trilemma. I want to read it to you all real quickly. C.S. Lewis says... Is I, am, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, talking about Jesus, that I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic 
on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man is, either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems obvious that he is neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. I love that thought from C.S. Lewis, because it is so true. And Jesus even states it here. You are either for me or against me. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters and works against us. And we have to understand that in this world, we live in this world where everyone is doing their own thing in their own way. But asking someone, what do you do with Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because you have to make up, a mind, make up your mind about that question. So I ask you today, who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Liar, lunatic, or Lord? In the second part of this, we have what uh, some people kind of think of as a really sticky situation here. This blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is this? What, what, what is this about? What is, what is happening here, right? So he goes on to say this in verse 31. says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. It's like, what in the world is that? And I've had Christians come and talk to me like, I think I might have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Okay? And you know what? I, I understand that when you read this, it's natural to say, have I done this? Like, I don't even understand what's happening here. But I think it's important if we understand and look at the context under which Jesus is saying this, the audience that he's saying it to, it's pretty clear what he's talking about here. So if we look into who is Jesus talking to, well, he's speaking to the Pharisees. Literally, the verse before, he's looking and speaking to the Pharisees here. And then you look at what does it mean to blaspheme? It means to speak in a way that shows irreverence to something sacred. What were what, what the Pharisees just doing? They were saying that he was working by the power of Satan when he was doing the things of God. And in the context, Jesus is saying here, you can be forgiven for rejecting him, but not for speaking against the Holy Spirit. Which is exactly what the Pharisees were doing in this moment. They were speaking against the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Father, working through the Son to cast out this demon. So this is a sin of the heart. And if you're saved, this isn't something that you would do. This isn't something that you could do. You've already submitted yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and humbled yourself before Him. You would not reject the work of the Holy Spirit in your life or in the lives of others. 
But ultimately, that's what the Pharisees were doing in this, mind, in this moment. He was casting out this demon. And here you have these people saying, can this be the son of man? You know, is, is this be the son of David? Is this the Messiah? God is working in their hearts to call them to himself. But instead, what the, what the Pharisees do is they work against him and spread lies about him. So they're blaspheming, speaking bad against speaking in a way of a reverence to something sacred about what the Holy Spirit is working in that moment. Specifically, this is a sin that the Pharisees were committing. They are willfully rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit in this moment. That's what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And you know what? Here's the thing. If you are rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit in your own life, you've already rejected Jesus. So if you're worried about blaspheming the Holy Spirit you wouldn't even be worried about that because you've already rejected Jesus. And there's no forgiveness for you. So this isn't something that, if you're saved, that you have to worry about. This is something Jesus was talking specifically to these Pharisees about their willful rejection of how the, how the Spirit of God was moving in that situation. So the last scene, and I, I need to wrap things up here, the last scene here, you have Jesus talk to them about a tree and fruit. Verse 33, either make, a, make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. What is Jesus talking about here? Basically, at first he's saying, listen, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm saying. Look at the miracles I'm performing. Look how God is doing great things through the ministry that he had there. Obviously, God is doing something. And the issue is, if the Pharisees would have recognized that, if they would recognize that anything that he did was from God, then they would have to recognize everything he was saying as coming from God. And they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to do that. And so Jesus basically says, listen, that the fruit of my life is good. For a tree is known by its fruit. And I ask you a question. Sometimes as Christians, you know, how do we know how do we know who's saved and who's not? How do we know who's living for the Lord and who's not? I think we have a principle here that we can understand. <clears throat> and, and I'll say this and no one knows a person's heart. God is the only one. We don't know someone's heart, but we can see in their life the works that are bringing out the fruit of what is in their heart. So Jesus clarifies that, that our hearts, our heart, or what is in our hearts is demonstrated by the works of our life. So we can evaluate someone's works of their life and make, have insight on what's happening in their heart. And so Jesus basically is saying... <clears throat> To the people that are there, look at the Pharisees. What, what are the works of their life? They give testimony to the evil that is in their heart. They conspire against me. They spread lies about me. They do all these other things to work against me. There's evil in their heart. And then here you have Jesus over here who's, who's loving people and healing people and teaching people, producing good fruit by doing the will of the Father. So he says in verse 34, you brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. And I have to be honest here. 
that is when I read this verse is when I got the idea for the Karate Kid reference. Because if you know what the Cobra Kai emblem is, it's a, it's a cobra, okay, which is a snake. So Jesus literally calls them a brood of vipers. It was in that moment that I just, just had this picture you know, portraying in my mind, because this is how my mind works, of, of, of the Pharisees, they're, they're like Cobra Kai, and Jesus is like Daniel's son, right? How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The, per, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And I tell you, on that day, the judge, uh, day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I want to make sure we understand what Jesus is not saying here. <clears throat> Jesus is not saying that if we say a bad word, that somehow we're going to be condemned. But what he's talking about is the way the words that we say and the, the way that we live our life gives testimony to whether our heart is for or against him. And so when we think about these sins, these sins that the Pharisees committed, here's what I want us to do kind of as we conclude this morning. Is I want us to think about them and hold them up and understand them in a way that, that if we see ourselves in their actions and their intentions, it's easy for us to maybe think, yeah, I would never do that, right? I would never, never do that. No, I, I would tell you, I want, I want you to understand, we probably have already done that. You probably maybe have more in common with them than you think that you do. Because here's the thing, they were zealous for God. They thought they were doing the will of God, but yet they were far from God. And as a pastor, I want you to understand, when I read that and I understand that these are the religious leaders who had the responsibility to, to lead God's people to him, I take that, it makes me fearful. One, that I would ever say or do anything that would lead someone away from God. That I would have evil in my heart. That I would reject what God was doing in the life of someone else. That I would not be faithful to give hope to those who are hurting. That I would be so blinded by my own biases I would not be able to see God at work. That I would ever, never equate something that is my tradition to be something that God has commanded us to do. As we close today, we're not we're going to have a response time, but I just would ask you this. As we close, as we look into the mirror of the life of the Pharisees, if you see yourself in there at all, it's okay if you do. It's okay. I would ask that you would do what they didn't do. When they saw Jesus doing the things that he, they had every opportunity just like the people that Jesus healed to run to him and find salvation in him, find forgiveness in him, be restored. Just like Jesus restored that man's hand, he can restore your life. He could have restored their lives. Renewed their spirit within them. But instead they rejected him 
They attempted to destroy him and conspired against him to kill him. So I would just say, if you see any bit of yourself reflected in that this morning, just encourage you to run to Jesus. Confess that to him. Tell him, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry when I've done this. Lord, forgive me. And the Pharisees willfully rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And I ask you, if you've never really considered this question, who is Jesus? You have to make your mind up on that. There's no room to be neutral on who he is. If you need to talk to someone this morning, maybe you're wrestling with that question, who Jesus is. I invite you to come talk to me after the service. Come see Pastor Jeff, Pastor Chuck. We would love to talk to you. Introduce you to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just the privilege that we have to open your word this morning. And Lord, I know we covered a lot. Lord, and just like the scenes of a movie as these things unfolded, God, we saw again and again the opportunity that was there for the Pharisees to believe. But yet they rejected you again and again and again and again. And I, I just want to pray specifically, God, this morning. Maybe there's someone in this room this morning, God, who maybe you've been at work in their life and they've rejected that. And they've rejected that and they've rejected that. And maybe they see themselves in what the Pharisees did. I pray they would not wait till it was too late to where they had totally rejected Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. But God, rather they would run to you this morning embracing what you have done or are doing in their life. Father, place their faith and trust in you to be their Lord and Savior. And Father, I pray for us just as a church. God, I pray we never see ourselves reflected in these Pharisees and the system that they created. Lord, that our traditions, that our opinions, that the things we think would really matter. Lord, if they're not aligned with you and your heart, God, we're just leading people astray. Father, I pray that our hearts would be true to who you are. Lord, our, our hearts would be teachable, be humble, be seeking after you all the time. Lord, that we would just see your will demonstrated in the life of this church and in this neighborhood as we seek to make a difference for, for you. Lord, thank you for all that you have done. Just the opportunity to open your word and have it speak to us straight to our spirit, Lord. God, your word speaks to our heart. Well, I pray it did that this morning. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.